Welcome to the Danny Palmer Show. Does it sound cool if I say it like that? Danny, why are you going to start a podcast? Hurry up and do your podcast so we can start talking. Okay, I will, sweetie. Thank you. What's up, gents? Welcome to the vainly titled Danny Palmer Show. The Fun Friday Pod. Each Friday, I put out an episode where it's just me talking. Sometimes I feel like a loser for doing a solo pod. I'm not Bill Burr. You know, I can't get away with that. And then my friend Allie Colbert, she does solo pods too. She's a much more successful comic than I am. She does solo pods. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. You do solo podcast. The people know I'm your new girlfriend because I talk a little differently than the old ones. Tell Ruth Mozart not to come over. She's mean. I don't like her. Fuck you, you little weirdo. All right. Uh, dude, lots of fun things to talk about this week. Uh, I love the feedback that I get on this pod. It's it's kind of like a strange hodgepodge of insults and come ons. It's a whole thing, man. Uh, someone said my friend Caroline, Caroline Haynes was on last week. They said your friend Caroline is hilarious and she sounds hot. And I told Caroline that feedback and she's like, oh, I like this. Whoever said that, I like them. I think it was uh, this dude, Sean. Back off, pal. Uh, and then... This week, I had on comic Malia Simon, who is good friends with Caroline, and uh, one of my friends slash listeners said, the guest you had is clearly smart. She is smarter than you at that age by a lot. I would agree with that. Malia is 23. Definitely much smarter than me, than me when I was 23. First of all, I was a virgin when I was 23. <laughs> and then she, he said, I, won't, I, won't, I don't, I don't want to reveal who this is, because, and I'm not necessarily saying... That this, I'm not saying that this feedback is accurate because it's pretty insulting to a wide range of people. <laughs> he said, she is the Danny Palmer show goat at this point and it is not even close. It is her. Then a gaggle of mediocrity in 200 plus episodes. Now listen, that is a rude thing to say and I won't stand for it. None of my pod. I have a lot of great guests on and they're my friends. You can go fuck yourself, pal. Ex-anonymous feedback giver trying to exaggerate their feedback to cause a ruckus. <laughs> Ain't. Uh, and then someone else was talking. Oh, uh, Carissa, my friend Carissa. I I had a inter- or interview, a commercial for Jizz Hut. Oh, I didn't start this episode episode with a commercial. Jizz Hut, come on by and Jizz. Uh, there was a. I had a commercial for Jizz Hut last week, and she was like, "That's you know, that's not really appealing to women because women don't jizz." And I'm like, "Look, the fine folks at Jizz Hut are loose with their definitions. You know, who says women can't jizz?" <laughs> I don't think Jizz is relegated to male behavior. She was like, "That's true. We can squirt, <laughs> all right." And I don't even, I don't even click the label that this, that my podcast is explicit. And I don't know. It, no one seems to be calling me out on it. So what the fuck ever, whatever. As my girl and Diane Word would say, if you haven't seen the Diane Word, Diane Word, yeah, Diane Word video, Baby's on Fire. It's so great, dude. She pretends to be a sibling with her uh, band mate. And she's being this like snooty little teenage daughter. She's playing that in the, in the video. And he says something to her and she goes, whatever. So I like to say that all the time now. Whatever. What if I just said that for like the next six minutes? Listenership would plummet. I was, I was watching an interview with David Spade and uh, Dana Carvey. And Dana Spade was saying that, um, you know, if you live in LA, podcasts are like jury duty there. <laughs> I thought that was a cool observation. Oh, you're doing a podcast? Oh, podcast. You're my podcast. I'll do a podcast. Uh, dude, I'm a huge fan of the Miami Hurricanes. The football, the entire program, you know, and 
I can't remember if I've talked about this in the pod before or not, but whatever, bears repeating. In the 80s, the college scouts for the big programs like Ohio State, Nebraska, Michigan, they're all racist, you know? They only recruited like big corn-fed white boys from Nebraska, and they overlooked the talent in the inner cities and the Miami. The University of Miami is a private school. You can watch this on the 30 for 30, the U. I guess I'm just, you know, recounting a documentary. But hey, not everybody has seen that documentary. Not everybody has seen The Godfather. That's a foreshadowing, something I'll talk about in a little bit here. So, you know, the Miami Hurricanes were a private school. They were trying to compete against these big schools in the Big Ten and SEC and, uh, I don't know, AC, not ACC. What's that other one? Big 12. Who, Danny, who cares? Pac-10, who were just primarily recruiting white dudes. And they started recruiting in the inner city of Miami and got a bunch of really talented black players. And then those players went out and whipped the shit out of those big white boy schools because those big white boy schools are fucking racist. So long live the U, okay? My friends that I went to college with, they all, they're all like our UGA fans. It's like, cool, dude. Cool fucking farmland town over there. Oh, we like down there in Athens, Georgia. Well, hey, we got REM. REM came from there. Okay, Danny, fuck you. All right, I'll give you REM. I went to college in Macon, Georgia back there in the 90s. And there were like bands that were kind of, I guess, like regional bands like Kitchafuni Cowboys, <laughs> Driving and Crying, Memory Dean. It's funny because, you know, I when I was in high school, I was like, my parents are strictly religious. I didn't go to any concerts except for one time I went to a Carmen concert, this Christian singer. And, uh, you know, I, went to, I got to college and they were all like Southern southern boys and girls getting down there on a the farm. They know all these Southern bands like Kitchafuni Cowboys. I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? And then I get into it. I was like, yeah, this is lit, dude. There was this bar called Liz Reed Music Hall. Liz Reed? Liz Reed's Music Hall? And Elizabeth Reed, in memory of Elizabeth Reed, is an Allman Brothers song. And the Allman Brothers, or one of them, is buried in the famous cemetery, the Akmogi Cemetery? Akmogi River? God damn it. There's a famous cemetery in Macon where one of the Allman Brothers is buried. And people go out there and smoke joints and leave the joints on his grave. And I've never been there, <laughs> even though I went to college there for four years. What was the point of this story? I don't know. Oh, we would go to Liz Reed's Music Hall and watch these bands. And I, I get into these, like, you know, like Southern regional bands. And then it's like, for us, it was like, oh man, driving and crying's playing? This is going to be fucking lit. Because, you know, our, our choices of bands in college, as I'm sure yours were, if you went to some small town school, were very limited, you know? It's like, what do we get? Because our fraternity would, like, you know, rent a band. And if you could rent, like, if, like, Kappa Sig would get, like, the Kinchafuni Cowboy. Oh my God, dude. Kappa Sig got the Kitchafuni. I remember it like being jealous of the Kappa Sigs for getting like a regional band. <laughs> Dude, my fraternity, I was in Pi Kappa Phi. Uh, even if you hate fraternities, it's still kind of a crazy story. So Rush Week, they would have themes. I think it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday was like bid day where you would give out the bids to the pledges that you wanted to, um, you know, to pull into the fraternity or whatever. So they'd have theme nights. So, dude, I I, can't, I don't even think this would be legal today. One of the theme nights we had was just beating the shit out of a car. Like, be, beat the car with, like, bats and sledgehammers. And, and were the windows in the car, you might ask? Oh, yes, the windows were in the car. They were immediately knocked out of the car by drunken college kids. So we would beat the shit out of this car. Then my friend Mike Good, he doesn't even know how to listen to a podcast, so he'll never hear this. He's too stupid. He, he dragged with the car door of a car from our fraternity house to our dorm floor in Shorter Hall down there in Macon, Georgia. And then we just had this car door on our floor with glass everywhere. That's not smart. (laughs) 
that's not smart to drag glass onto the floor where you know 20 college kids are walking down the hall every day in their flip-flops to go take a shower like we were complete idiots and then we would also steal fruit from the cafeteria and throw it up against the wall at night and my roommate tim was just this real like fastidious ocd kind of person who had to like you know have everything in its place in the room and he opens the door going in the hallway and he's like why why is there fruit all over the door why'd you guys throw?" he was like from new york why'd you guys throw fruit at the door that's fucking you know we live here you're throwing fruit around our home (laughs) yeah man it's fun to throw fruit against the door dude deal with it (laughs) as you know if you if you listen to this pod if i come home late at night in the weekends and i'm kind of drunk and high and i'm by myself often happens I'll put my headphones in so my, I don't bother my neighbors and because the sound quality is better. And I'll watch this l- l- series of like videos I have. I, I made a playlist on YouTube called Late Night Chill. And I keep adding new ones here and there. And the latest one that I've added is Gwen Stefani singing Just a Girl. It's probably like 20 years old or something. And it's so great. It's like... Like at the height of No Doubt fame. And uh, you, know, you know how it is in a live concert when they take their big hit and like stretch it out over seven minutes and they just play the opening beat for like three minutes just to hype up the crowd and it's like all right dude get to the fucking verse you know what i mean but she did this this really cool thing she's like oh hey she talks like this she's like oh hey are the boys here liking to sing are the girls here liking to sing she's like over speaking like that and then she's like hey boys you guys want to sing and then the boys like yeah so she goes, I'm just a girl. And then the boys go, I'm just a girl. And then she goes, okay. And now the, now the, um, oh yeah. She goes, just the boys sing. And they did that part. And then she knew, she could tell by the timber of their voices that girls were singing along with the boys because they were drinking. They're at a concert. It's fun. I get it. You know, Gwen Stefani's telling the audience to sing and she's like, just the boys. And you're like, well, I'm a girl, but I'm still going to sing this part because it's fun. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Gwen knew she could hear that the girls were singing with the boys, so she scolded the girls. She goes, hey, girls, I know you're singing with the boys. Stop doing that. This part's for just the boys. And then you know what happened? The girls stopped singing, and it sounded different. <laughs> it's pretty genius. And then obviously the girls get the, you know, the, the big uh, chorus, rolling chorus, and the fucking... The song is called Just a Girl. Clearly, it's skewed towards the girls. <laughs> But she scolded them in the beginning. I was lit. Is that story worth telling? I think it is. We went to uh, Benny Hanna in Manhattan for my friend's birthday this week, and uh, it's fun. You know, it's fun to go to Benny Hanna. I mean, I, I don't. I never go unless somebody else is like, "Do you want to go to Benny?" I'm like, "All right, let's fucking go." But you know, you know when those moments happen when someone kind of breaks the social code of like being polite and having fun. You know, like the chefs come in and they're doing their thing and they're whipping their knives around and lighting the onions. First of all, that's not really a volcano. You just lit three onions on fire. But, um, you know, the, the guy at first, he was, I think he was, maybe he was Indian, the guy, the chef. And he made a joke at the beginning about, like, everything is Japanese in the restaurant except for me. Good joke. Okay. Then later, my friend's like, hey, he goes, how long have you been doing this? Just trying to, like, you know, just make polite small talk with the person that's standing in front of us for 30 minutes. And he goes, about 20 minutes. And it's like, you know instead of being sincere and being like, oh, I've worked here for a few years or whatever, I just had to be like, oh, about 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, okay. All right. So just trying to be polite and, you know, move beyond the boundaries of you cooking us a meal and, you know, the kind of like power imbalance between someone that's like doing something for you and the person that's having something done for them. Uh, but then it's like someone, he bats down that, that, uh, that 
you know, attempt to kind of just, hey, f- fuck the roles that we're playing here. How are you? You know, just kind of a simple idea to like, not a simple idea, what's the term? Just like a polite question. And the guy just like bats the polite question down. I don't know. I just a little shit like that, man. Like, have you seen um, uh, Leaving Las Vegas? Uh, there's a great scene where Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue are these like complete drunk raving alcoholics and they're on their way to Las Vegas to drink. Nick Cage is going to drink himself to death if you haven't seen it. And Elizabeth Shue is like his girlfriend, basically. They stop at this like motel and they're drinking by the pool and it's during the day and they're just, you know, clearly hammered. <laughs> and there's f- families and kids around and uh, Elizabeth Shue knocks over a glass and it breaks and the hotel or motel manager comes over this lady and she's like sweeping up the glass and Elizabeth Shue like, you know, pulls herself together and realizes she's done a social faux pas and is apologetic and doesn't want to inconvenience the manager. And she's like, and the manager's like super sweet at first, you know, she's like, Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then she looks, I'll never get this scene. She looks up at Elizabeth Shue and she goes, don't worry, honey, we get trash like you here all the time. It's like being polite, being polite, playing the role, playing the role, not polite. And obviously that was much more rude than, you know, deflecting a, a, a sincere question, but little shit like that, shit like that out in public sticks in your craw you know what i'm saying i was thinking about this because i'm fucking 46 i'm always talking about this i'm a 46 bald loser (laughs) i'm not a loser i'm 46 and bald and i've been doing corporate recruiting for like over 20 years and i just remember being in my 20s in atlanta and thinking to myself you know there's always this idea that like oh once you're in your 40s companies are going to see you as over the hill and why would they pay you a high salary when they could just pay some intern or recent graduate much less um, and then you're just going to be uh, obsolete you're going to age out of the market and not be in demand and you know I, I had that worry through my 20s that that was going to happen to me and then as it turns out the technology market continues to boom it never gets it never like stops booming it just keeps going up and up and up and now i'm in my 40s and like there's plenty of recruiters that are calling all the time and it just it's just a reminder of like you know the the who's that that mark twain quote about like many terrible things have happened to me some of which have actually occurred like this the things that you kind of like twist that knife or twist that screwdriver in your brain with anxiety about oh x potential scenario could turn out to be bad I spent a lot of time in my 20s thinking about that shit. And then now I'm at that age in my 40s and that didn't pan out. It didn't happen. And it could have. And maybe it will later. But, you know, it's just a reminder, like, the shit you're worried about in the future. Who the fuck knows what the future is going to be like? You don't fucking know, dude. Don't fucking grind yourself up into a knot. Don't don't grind yourself up into a knot, sweetie. <laughs> How many girlfriends do I have in this bar, man? Who's that? I like her. I like her. Yeah, man. I put on a nice girl. Thanks, baby. Danny, fuck you. Just do your podcast. Oh, I have three girlfriends. I ain't your girlfriend. Uh, what is this story? Oh, dude. A spa- I, I haven't done uh, any space articles recently, and I'm, now I've got a story about space. So this is about uh, Elon Musk. So Russia, the Russian space agency... Oh, sorry. By the way, uh, my friends Carissa and Asha don't like space. Um, they just like to focus on... I don't know what they do. They just play like jacks or like pickup sticks or something. They don't like to think about the world around them or the... you know universe around them um i'll let you guys return to playing uno and uh the smarter people that listen to the podcast will will focus on this story so um <laughs> so the russian space agency roscosmos the head of it dmitry rogozin he suggested that the united states would henceforth have to go into orbit on their broomsticks because we stopped partnering with them on uh them sending our astronauts up into space on their rockets 
And like, oh, the Americans are just going to have to send their sh- shit into space on their broomsticks, like oh, a real insult. So because, the you know, we place sanctions on them for invading Ukraine. Um, and then Elon Musk was like, oh, yeah, pal. He kind of dug back at them. He posted a video of his Falcon 9 launching 47 Starlink satellites into orbit. Musk tweeted American broomstick with a bunch of American flags. And, uh, and then it was a, he attached a, a Reuters report on Rogozin's statement. So, ha 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 ha. Oh, here's the quote that the Russian space agency leader said. In a situation like this, we cannot supply the United States with our world's best rocket engines. Let them fly in something else. They're broomsticks. I don't know what. So, what the fuck ever? And then they, this story has a bunch of tweets from people being like, nice job, Elon. That's fucking lit. That is fucking lit, you know? But uh, look, in the long run, there's plenty of good people in Russia. I mean, that leader of the space program seems like he's a dick. But I'm sure that there are plenty of honest, sincere scientists that care about exploration in the Russian space program. And we've collaborated with them for a long time. Hopefully over time, we can find a way to, you know, work with real scientists and lovers. Now I'm thinking in my head, like Danny, you're not supporting Ukraine. <laughs> no, I swear. I, uh, I can't do, I, I can't. Nobody wants to listen to me talk about world events. You know, that's, I've realized that nobody, literally nobody on the planet wants to hear that. I read this article, this interview, with uh al pacino because the godfather turns 50 this year i think it turns 50 in like march 15th or something like that yeah the godfather premiered in new york on march 15th 1972 so now it's 50 years there's gonna be all this fucking hoopla and rigmarole for the fucking godfather dude so i read this uh interview with um al pacino he's 81 now and he was quite philosophical even whimsical about discussing the film he still loves the movie, and uh, apparently, like no, Paramount didn't want um, Francis Ford Coppola to cast Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, or James Caan, or Paramount didn't, or something like that. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude! And he'd only been in like one movie. I think he had won a Tony before that, and he'd only been in like one movie. And this just fucking it. He goes, "I'm here because I did The Godfather." They interviewed him uh, from his home in Los Angeles. He said, "For an actor, that's like winning the lottery." When it comes right down to it, I had nothing to do with the film but play the part. But uh, Francis Ford Coppola thought all along that Al Pacino was the right character for it. He said, this article says he was a candidate worth going to the mattresses for. I thought they say, you know, I would go to the mat for you. I thought that was like a wrestling term. I didn't know that was like a bed term. You're going to go to the mattresses in a bed? What? So uh, Coppola said, when I actually read the Godfather book, I kept imagining him. And I didn't have a second choice. It was for me always Al Pacino. That's the reason why I was so tenacious about getting him to play Michael. That was my problem. So I thought this article was really, this interview is really interesting. Al Pacino talks about a lot of, a lot of things that, you know, there's a lot of parallels in the arts amongst the different types of pursuits amongst uh, film and TV and stand-up comedy. And I would assume music and ballet. And it's all kind of one big thing in some respects. So... Al Pacino said, it's hard to explain in today's world to explain who I was at that time and the bolt of lightning that it was. I felt like all of a sudden some veil was lifted and all eyes were on me. Of course, they were on others in the film, but The Godfather gave me a new identity that was hard for me to cope with. And he hadn't had a lot of acting experience beyond being on Broadway. And he wasn't really interested in acting in film and to the extent that he obviously became interested in it over time. He said, my head was in another space. I felt out of place in the early films that I made. I remember saying to my friend Charlie, who was his mentor, the acting teacher, Charlie Lawton, wow, they talk about it being real, but meanwhile, it's not, because there are wires all over you. 
And also, you've got to do it again. You do it, and they say, well, go again. Do it again. It's real and not real at the same time, which takes some getting used to, which I guess, you know, when you're doing a Broadway show, you're doing it kind of all in one take during the actual performance, you know? So that's something. Is that something? Oh, Danny, you said read Argum Albuchena. The early count is content. I think you're being lazy. Look, I like fucking reading this stuff, okay? I like learning about this shit. So this interviewer is like, look, you know, you're being hard on yourself about not being accomplished at that point in your career. You had already won a Tony Award. And he goes, oh, on the island of Manhattan, things were happening for me. I had done The Indian Wants the Bronx. I was young. I got the Obie Award, and then I won a Tony. Then I got fired from a play. <laughs> Al Pacino got fired from a play. That's hilarious. Hey, man, get the fuck out of here. He goes, I got fired from some play. They let me go. Let's put it this way. You happen to be the lead, but we're letting you go. That's how bad you are in this performance. So I was known in certain quarters. I wasn't looking for work in that sense. I was engaging myself in things. Dude, isn't that insane? It's like Michael Jordan getting cut from his JV basketball squad. Al Pacino getting fired from being the lead in a, in a play. Like, Jesus, dude. Um, so they talked about... Um, the interviewer was talking about working alongside more experienced actors like James Caan and Robert Duvall, who had more movie making experience, and Marlon Brando, who really, or who obviously he admired a lot. Um, you know, how did you hold your own in that environment? And Al Pacino said, "I thought about the role. I just couldn't articulate it at the time. I could articulate it today. I was thinking that this is a character that could be very effective if he comes out of nowhere. That was my vision for it. I couldn't naturally mention it to anyone because I didn't know how to say it, but I could think it." And I felt it was mapped out for me when I read the script. So he had this whole vision for what the character could be. And he couldn't even articulate that vision. He can only act it. I mean, dude, you've only done one movie and you're already already at that level of brilliance of how to interpret and play a character. You can't even articulate it in the beautifully artistic way that you envision it in your mind. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. All right. I'll just talk about two more things from this interview. and We'll wrap up the old pod, June. This part was I thought was kind of inspiring. They asked him, was there ever a moment during the making of The Godfather that you realized it was going to be as great as it is? He goes, you remember the funeral scene for Marlon when they put him down? It was over for the evening. The sun was going down. He's talking about being an actor there, not just being in the movie. So naturally, I'm happy because I get to go home and have some drinks. I was on the way to my camper saying, well, I was pretty good today. I had no lines, no obligations. That was fine. Every day without lines is a good day. (laughs) That's kind of hilarious to hear an actor say that. No lines today. It was sick. So I'm going back to my camper, and there, sitting on a tombstone, is Francis Ford Coppola, weeping like a baby, profusely crying. And I went up to him, and I said, Francis, what's wrong? What happened? He says, they won't give me another shot, meaning they wouldn't allow him to film another setup. And I thought, okay, I guess I'm in a good film here, because he had this kind of passion, and there it is. I mean, that's pretty amazing, dude. Just weeping at the end of the day. And he didn't know that anybody was going to see him weep and articulate that to a reporter 50 years later. That is a, a you know pretty crystallized expression of having a passion for your art. Pretty pretty fucking lit, dude. And then this last thing I think is a pretty good expression of like simultaneous uh, self pride and ego and humility. They asked him, "Do you have any kind of metric you allow yourself to use to rank your own films?" He said, "I guess the films I make myself that I directed and wrote, none of which I think anyone has ever seen, like Looking for Richard or Salome with Jessica Chastain." But I'm talking about myself. I should be talking about The Godfather. That's what this interview is about. I don't know why I got on, why I get on about myself. I don't know anybody else. <laughs> Someone called me. He says, you must be alone. I said, no, I'm here with my ego. <laughs> Very similar to this episode of The Danny Palmer Show. Just here with my fucking ego, you jeez. Thanks for listening. If you want to follow me on Instagram, Danny Palmer NYC, send me a note. No one ever does. 
Except for Carissa, she doesn't count. Just kidding, Carissa, you count. Oh, it's Carissa. You're with me. I like you talking about girl boss. Don't you listen to Danny Pasha? What if I just switch that voice from now on? Oh, 24 minutes. Not too fucking cheap. Peace out, June. Blackout every Friday night. Blackout LES 172 Remington Friday nights, 9 o'clock. It's fun. You can do Coke in the basement if you want. Coke's illegal.